Welcome to You Might Relate, a podcast where we take relationships and mental health to the next level. I am Stacy Heaps, a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been practicing therapy for the last 15 years. There are counseling concepts and stories that I am excited to share. When we know better, we do better. Together, let's get to a place of radical acceptance of where we are while improving relationships and tackling life's transitions, one therapy concept and one story at a time. So let's get started to see if you relate. Hello again. I am so glad you are here. How is your day going? I hope it's a good one. This episode today may be difficult for some to listen to or to understand. You might have a different way of thinking about things or handling this situation. It's okay. Remember that we are here to understand someone else's experience, not to judge or be critical. I challenge you to sit with the uncomfortableness, if there is any, and just notice it. My guest today is Amanda Erdley. She is a nurse and a running coach. Really, she's a coach of anything fitness. She's a wife, a mother of five boys, (laughs) and is an adventurer and the designated party planner by her friends. Fun fact about her is that she is qualified for the Boston Marathon five times, her last time being a few weekends ago with her son. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Today, we are going to talk about the feelings of betrayal that I had after realizing that the religion that I built my entire life upon wasn't exactly what I thought. So you're navigating through betrayal. And so with that betrayal, a faith transition? Yes. Okay. Well, let's get into it. Tell us just a little bit about yourself first. I grew up in Salt Lake till I was 15. And then my family moved here to St. George. My mom and dad were both really hardworking people, not extremely religiously committed. We were what you would probably call Jack Mormons growing up. What would make someone a Jack Mormon? For example, shopping on Sunday, that was never a problem. We would go out to eat. We would go to an amusement park on Sunday, kind of casual church attenders. But I have me and one sister who were a lot more devoted. We saw the rules as more important. And so we were oftentimes doing things on our own. So we moved to St. George. My dad got a job, had a job opportunity. So we came here and there were other things too. My parents didn't really love the crowd that I was getting into. We lived in a very low income place and there was gang activity, drug activity in my neighborhood. So they were trying to get me away from that. So just a change. It was really hard to move here. St. George was a tiny town then. So I came down here with all the Salt Lake trends. I looked like a weirdo. I had a really hard time (laughs) making friends and fitting in. I had a boyfriend in Salt Lake. We kept in touch and I would go visit him occasionally on the weekends. And my junior year of high school, I got pregnant. I found out in May and then told my family. I waited until after my sister got married in June to tell my family. So that kind of changed the course of my life a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So you got pregnant and what happened at that point? I ended up marrying the father of my child. The relationship was abusive from day one. We met when I was 13 and by abusive from the time... I was 13 till the time I got pregnant. It was mostly emotional abuse. 
And then we got married a month after my 17th birthday. And I moved in with him. We lived in his parents' basement. And I finished high school online through packets, and he finished high school his normal senior year. But we were married for three years. It was a very abusive marriage. It was physically abusive, much more so towards the end, sexually abusive and emotionally abusive. So three years in, got the courage to leave him and looked at my little boy who was two at the time, and really that was the day I decided I needed to change my life. I did not want my son to be raised in the circumstances and situations that he was starting to be aware of as they were happening. And so it, you mean you didn't want him to see abuse. I didn't want him to think that was healthy or that's how he should grow up to be. So it took a couple of weeks after that. This person had a huge hold on me emotionally. And I was also young with not a lot of schooling behind me. I was working on things, but I didn't have a lot of options at the time. It was very scary. But I went to a house he was at and we got into an argument in the front yard and he ended up strangling me. He put his hands around my neck and cut off my air supply till the point where I blacked out. I didn't pass out, but I blacked out. That was my final sign of that I needed to get out as fast as I can. And I left that weekend. There's a lot that happened that had to happen emotionally for me to completely cut ties. But that was the last weekend we were together. We lived in Salt Lake together and I came home. I was able to obtain a protective order. And then we drove to St. George. Thankfully, my parents were they're very loving and supportive of me and my son moving in with them. So we moved to St. George and first thing, my bishop, who had been my bishop when I got pregnant, called me into his office and I told him what was going on. And his advice to me was that I made my bed and I needed to sleep in it, <laughs> meaning that I needed to make my marriage to this man work. It was my responsibility because I had a child with him. When I had that interview with my bishop, he told me to go back. I did find a counselor because I was listening to my priesthood leader's advice. I found a counselor. I met my husband. He was still my husband at the time in the counseling office in Salt Lake. And we sat together for one hour with this counselor. And the counselor looked me in the eyes at the end of the session. And he said, you need to run and you need to run as fast as you can. You need to get out of this marriage. And the yeah. bishop was saying, but you got to try to make it work out. When I came back to the bishop and told him what the counselor had said, he gave me the miracle of forgiveness and asked me to read it. And if you've ever read that, it's terrible. <laughs> and they, they no longer carry it. Yeah, they I, no longer carry it. But me, this 19-year-old girl who already feels so much shame and guilt about my life, and I've been in an abusive marriage, and I'm reading this book that tells me that what I did was equal to murder. I was 19. I had already made the decision to divorce him, but the bishop said, you should make the marriage work if he wants to. Okay, I'll make the marriage work. We'll go to the counselor. Number one, bishops, please do not advise on staying with somebody who is abusive. Please recommend professional for counseling if there is counseling needed. But your words carry such weight for believing members. And so we want to make sure that your advice is sound advice and not just what you think should happen. Yes, right? that sounds exactly right. 
after the initial shock and the disappointment my parents felt, they were very supportive of me. But I felt like all eyes were on me and they were watching and probably almost even hoping that I would fail because, you know, here I am, this 17 year old with a baby and I'm an extremely ambitious person and I wasn't about to let anyone watch me fail. It was really good for me at the time, but those characteristics and traits followed me throughout a lot of adulthood in an unhealthy way. Because you always had to kind of prove yourself that was actually an unhealthy thing. You should just be able to do what you choose to do and not have to feel like you prove it to other people. Exactly. But you kind of felt this energy from others that, well, she's never going to make it. She can't do it. And you did. And And I absolutely did. You went on to get be a nurse. I worked really hard. I finished my entire senior year in two months. I had my high school diploma by October. My due date was February. So I started on college credits. I worked full time and then I had Michael in February and I immediately got started back into college. I had my associate's degree by the time I was 18 years old and I was applied for and accepted to the University of Utah to start my first term of pre-med school when I finally decided to leave the marriage. And because of that, I had to change courses completely moved down to St. George, and I switched my education to nursing because I figured that was something I could do as a single mom, and it was a pretty good income and way to provide for my son. From gangsta to nurse. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so then lead us into what happens next as it flows with your faith transition. So shortly after I got accepted to nursing school, I met my current husband, We had a typical Mormon courtship. At that time, I was back active in the church. I thought that was the best thing for me and for my son. And so I was 21 when I got married the second time. We got married in the temple. Our goals as husband and wife were to raise our family in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We were both committed to that and faithful to that for a really long time. I finished school. I worked as a nurse while my husband finished school. In the meantime, we're having children. So we had our first child together and we had our next son about a month after my husband graduated from school. And at that time, my husband was able to get a job that allowed me to stay home for a while. We had two more kids. And during those years, we were completely immersed in raising our family in the gospel. Both of us served in leadership callings and we put our whole lives into it, our whole hearts. We felt like we were checking all the boxes and following all of the things that we committed to do. So then what happened? (laughs) It sounds like life is pretty awesome. (laughs) I, I would say life was pretty overwhelmed. It was awesome but it was overwhelmed. I served in Young Women's a lot. The very first time I got called to Young Women Presidency, I was talking to the bishop and his words to me were, no, I just want to tell you that we really just don't want you to talk about your past. Getting pregnant at 17. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really hurtful to me because here he is saying that my past was so shameful that I can't even talk about it. And I think that was the time I was probably 22 or 23, the first time I got called into a young woman presidency. And that's the time I started lying to people about my age. So here I am, this really faithful person. I do not believe in lying, but I also was told, don't talk about your past. Well, the only way to do that is to 
make sure people thought I was a little bit older. So I started just telling people I was a few years older than I really was. And that continued until I was 32 years old. Does that eat at you? Oh, absolutely. Like, absolutely. Those girls could have learned from you. Yeah. I had that exact identical situation with two different bishops with getting callings. So it happened yeah, again. Don't share your don't story. Don't talk about your past. I really do believe that shame, secrecy breeds shame. When I was told that, it was just this deep pit of shame in my stomach. I've said that teenage pregnancy is the unforgiven sin in the church because it's always evident. It's always obvious unless you're lying. And people judge it very unfairly and very easily, I think. So during that time that I was in the Young Women program, I sat through two lessons where the leaders gave bubble gum to all the girls in the room and told them to chew the bubble gum and then take the bubble gum out of their mouth and to pass it to their neighbor and to chew the bubble gum. And the idea behind the lesson was that no one wants chewed bubble gum. And chewed bubble gum was someone who wasn't virtuous on their wedding night. So here I am, this adult in this leadership calling with tears streaming down my face because I'm chewed bubble gum. Even though I've gone through the repentance process and I'm in a temple marriage and those feelings just didn't ever leave because you just keep getting reminded over and over. Those feelings don't just go away. You internalize them. I internalized them. They stayed with me. And so the things that I would hear in the future from different leaders, from different people, friends, family, well-meaning family even, would say things that were just so extremely hurtful. I sat through a lot of lessons that just reinforced to me, even as an adult, that I would never be whole again, that I was chewed up bubblegum, that my sin was equal to murder, even though here I had turned around my whole life. And so those feelings, they shaped a lot of who I was, how I acted, and they were hard. What do you do as a, you're in your late twenties or thirties at this point in these young women lessons, and you hear a lesson like that, and you said that tears are streaming down your face. Do you say anything? Do you tell people? Are you just silent and just internalize it? You're not saying anything to anybody. No. Do you go home and tell your husband? Yes. Okay. But how I played out in my mind was that people would see, well, she made those mistakes. So she's feeling the guilt of it, or that's her burden to bear. So that makes you feel more alone. And that is so damaging. It breaks my heart. And I think one of, one of my breaking points was my husband and I got called to be Mon Pana Trek. And I was super pumped about that because I really love everything about it. And our oldest son was graduating and he was getting ready for a mission. And it was a fun experience to have with him. And we were just really excited. So it was a great experience. And the last night we had a a little fireside and the stake president's wife talked about virtue. And it was a beautiful talk on virtue. The only problem with it was that she talked again about not being virtuous and she never tied the atonement back into it. And me, I was a little bit older. I had a little bit of time to start dealing with things and to start feeling like maybe there was something wrong with the messaging that I had gotten and that I had continued to get. And at the same time, I'm still just sitting there sobbing. My husband's just petting my leg. I'm so sorry. And we left. And at that point, I realized I needed to get some counseling to deal with this and to start to heal that part of me that was hurting so bad when I was put into these situations. So that was a changing point. That was 
when I stopped lying about <laughs> how old I was and I decided I was just going to be who I was because in my opinion, I wasn't someone that needed to lie about who she was or where she came from. When you have a trauma that's happened to you, when you go to a counselor, you can say, hey, do you do parts work? I really want to heal this 13-year-old part of me or this eight-year-old part of me. We want to make sure to ask that of your counselor. Yeah, so it's good to know. Yeah, yeah, it's good to know. So again, it, with the whole virtue thing, people will say, Amanda, well, she just left the church because she got a lot of chastity lessons and she got pregnant when she was 16. And so no wonder she's left. Yeah. So is that the reason why you left? Because you're offended? I really did believe that the church leaders spoke for God and that when they said something, that it was not negotiable. So church leaders telling me these things, they went to my core. And so these little sitting through these lessons and starting to feel like this is probably wrong, but I don't know, I can't determine that for sure, that I started thinking maybe I'm not wrong. Maybe I actually shouldn't be having to feel all these horrible feelings about myself. And there is grace and there is mercy for me. It's just not coming how it should. What was it that gave you that idea? Was it just a thought or how did you come to that? I think over time, I think when I was in my early thirties and lying to people and it felt so awful every time, but the alternative is telling the truth. And I've been told not to tell the truth. Okay. So I'm in this conundrum of, do I be authentic or do I continue to hide my whole past? It was probably just a lot of growth. I went through nursing school. I took classes on psychology. I took classes on human development. And I also worked in patient psych. So I saw a lot of different psych issues as well. And so I think it's just knowledge and, and starting to realize I don't need to carry these feelings anymore. Wow. And that was in direct conflict with the messaging that I was getting. And so I had to decide, do I get to make decisions for myself? And the answer was, well, yes, to a certain extent. Don't go too far, though. <laughs> you came back from Trek. Was there discussions about that? Because now your son is about to go on a mission. Yeah, I mean, not really. We felt like... We were very open parents regarding letting our kids talk to us about questions and having choices in their paths. I do remember sitting down with my son and telling him, you have a choice in going on a mission. And, and I was still hoping he would go. I really wanted him to go at this point, but I also wanted to make sure that it was his choice. And I remember at one point him saying to me, it's almost like you're trying to talk me out of going. And I said, absolutely not. You have a choice. Just wanting to make sure that he wants to go and you do want him to go at this mm -hmm. point. Yeah. It was just exactly what our life plan was supposed to look like. This is the thing that's frustrating because you could sit down and talk to me for six hours and just know more and more details of what led up to this. But there are a lot more things that led up to this situation. That weekend ended up being the hardest weekend of my life. We drove our son up to the MTC five years ago yesterday. Whoa. Yep. And we, our whole family went. At that time, we had a son who was 18. We had a son who was 13, a son who was 11, a son who was eight, and a son who was six. So we all drove him up to the MTC. It was heartbreaking. I feel like it's the unspoken in the church and talking about missions and what a wonderful thing they are, how hard it is to actually 
leave your child for two years. I know things are a lot different now and missionaries get to have a lot more communication with families. But at, at that point, it was weekly emails and that was really hard for me. You know, Michael and I had been through a lot together and to know I'm just sending him out into the wild was very difficult. So it was already very emotional. On the way home from sending him, we dropped off our son to scout camp. And then we went home to St. George and that was a Wednesday. And on Saturday, our son came home and he was completely white-faced and something had happened. Like I said, we're a very open family. We talk about everything. We're very open about questions about sex, about pornography. We just feel like communication is the best way to deal with things, especially with me being a health major and knowing biology. And so we talk to our kids about all these things at the appropriate age. Well, he told us that, let me give you a tiny bit of background. My husband's family has clinical obsessive compulsive disorder. And at this time, we saw signs of it in a couple of our kids. So this Which kid, is nothing to be ashamed about. No, no not at all. A lot of people have obsessive compulsive disorder. Hey, I wear glasses. I have compulsive disorder. I have bipolar. I have depression. It's okay. There's no shame in that. Because I do feel like the term gets thrown around a lot. Like if you see someone who's a perfectionist or who likes things a certain way, oh, you just have OCD. But obsessive compulsive disorder is actually a disorder that can really interfere with yes. people's lives yeah. and it can become dysfunctional. My son at the time was focusing his obsessive compulsive disorder on religious things. At that time, we didn't know there was a term for that. We now know that the term is scrupulosity, so it's religious obsession. But the things that we were seeing were leading up to my oldest son leaving on his mission. This son read the Book of Mormon three times in 90 days. He was also doing a lot of things to become this perfect person in the church. And so we already as parents are concerned about him in a way that we're worried that he's trying too hard to be perfect. So when this son came home, he said that the bishop had come up and given the boys. And this is the hardest part about my journey and my family's journey. And I'm going to tell you this. This is going to get really personal. I'm not just talking about myself. I'm talking about my kid. And I'm saying something that could put him in a negative light. And so that's why a lot of people hide what they're going through. Yes. is because they don't want to be seen in a negative light. And I feel very defensive because I just want to preface this by saying that the things he was going through were very typical for a boy who was going through puberty. Yes. And so I'm going to talk about an extremely sensitive topic. So the bishop came up to scout camp on the last night and he gave the kids a talk about pornography and masturbation. And he told the boys that if they had participated in either of those things that they needed to repent. And then he proceeded to pull the boys into his truck on the mountain all alone in the dark and have them repent of any of these sins that they had participated in. He just said to the boys, if you have a problem with any of these things, you need to come and talk to me. I'll be available. Okay, and so my son, being the religious perfectionist that he is, felt like it was something he needed to go talk to the bishop about. He went and told the bishop, 
nothing that he hadn't talked to my husband and myself about and that we hadn't been talking about as a family already or as you know a mother and husband and son the things that he told him were not a surprise to us but the way that he responded is kind of what set things into motion i guess he told my son that he was no longer worthy and used the word worthy to take or pass the sacrament or participate in a prayer or participate in any of his priesthood responsibilities and that he needed to meet with him the next morning. So when my son is telling us this, immediately I'm going into a little bit of a downward spiral personally because of all of my sexual shame, because all of my feelings of, of this thing that happened when I was 16 that knowing the effect that had on my own personal life, my sexuality, my worth as a human even, and so I was really not okay with how this was happening. My husband was not okay with it either, especially to know that our son, who's our, we already know is really way too hard on himself, has now been told he's no longer worthy of his oh, responsibilities. And we knew that this was going to be a problem. We let our son go to bed. We knelt together in a husband and wife prayer and started a fast that we would know how to deal with the situation, how to deal with the bishop, and how to proceed. And we decided that we needed to talk to the bishop right away. So my husband called him. He said he wouldn't be able to talk to us. And my husband said, I'm sorry, this is really important to us. And he said, okay, well, you can come talk to me at my house then. So we went over to his house and sat in, in his office and we explained to him what he was doing was going to damage our son and hurt our son. We explained to him that he had OCD and his response to us was, what is OCD? Some kind of behavior disorder. So he knew nothing about it, knew nothing how it worked, knew nothing how what he was doing could impact our son or how it could hurt his mental health. He said to us, this is how it's going to be. You guys really don't have a say in this. This is not just my direction. This is direction from the stake president. He said, I cannot have unworthy boys passing my sacrament. He said my sacrament, which was crazy to us, but also saying unworthy boys. And I really didn't like that he was classifying these kids as unworthy. And really, to be honest, both of us are wondering, well, is this such a big issue that he shouldn't be taking the sacrament? I mean, we're both questioning ourselves right. and our route as parents and the decisions we've already made. But this, in our eyes, was not going in the right direction. I left there in this ball of anxiety and trauma and shame and everything else. Because of your past, like because everything past. that he's saying that your son isn't worthy, that's re-traumatizing you from your past. But it also was extremely empowering because I could see what he was doing was wrong. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I was able to say, because it wasn't me, it was my son. It was the first time I was able to say, okay, this is wrong and we have to fight it. Wow. So my husband and I went home and we continued our fast. We went to bed, we woke up in the morning, we knelt in prayer together, and by the end of the prayer, we were both crying and came to the decision. So we had decided that we weren't gonna have our son go to this appointment, that we were going to seek help outside of what we were dealing with to see how to proceed with this. My husband's father had been a 
bishop, a stake president, a mission president. And so we thought that he would be a good person to talk to. We wanted to talk to a counselor. We were researching human development. We were looking at all these things like maybe we're wrong, maybe we're not, but we need more information before we can put our son through this. Is it a problem more than a typical boy his age? And do we need to do something more about it? The bottom line was, he is a worthy kid. He's a good kid. So where so, do you look? Well, at first, we're on our knees. We're just ending our fast and our prayer. And our son walks into the room with his suit on. And we said, we've decided that we're going to wait a little while and we'll have you meet with the bishop at another time. And he said, no, this is my priesthood responsibility. It's my duty. I need to go to that meeting. And so I said to him, well, how would you feel about me being in the room? And he said, that's totally fine. So I hurried and got dressed and I went and I asked if I could speak with the bishop alone for a couple minutes first. So I went in and I just asked him, will you please reconsider telling my son that he's not worthy of taking the sacrament? Passing is another story, but I, I don't think that this is in line with church policies or doctrine. I think this is something that you're doing. And he said, this is the direction of our stake president. This is how it's going to be. And I said, okay. My son came in the room and he proceeded to give him an interview. And this part's really hard to talk about. If you have kids in the room, you're going to want to turn this off. What I'm about to say is going to make you extremely uncomfortable. And I want you to imagine your 13-year-old son or daughter being asked these questions. Because the questions that were asked were, when you're doing this, what are you thinking about? When you're doing this, are you under or over your clothes? When you're doing this, are you looking at something? When you're doing this, how does it feel? Does it pulse at the end? He asked my 13-year-old son. And you're in the room. And I'm in the room. I'm sitting there. He asked him, does it pulse? I don't feel like I have to be in the bishop's defense, but I did not get a vibe of this is a sexual perversion on his part. I really do feel like he was following guidelines from people above him. However, those questions are never appropriate between a man and a child, even with their parents sitting in the room. I was so angry. I told my son to leave the room steam coming out my ears like what is happening right now i was in shock i had no warning that that would be what the questions were going to be that they would be so graphic and so detailed and so i was mostly sitting there in shock until i finally got my voice to say this is not okay please leave the room to my son and then i told the bishop this is wrong what you're doing is going to hurt my son. It's going to hurt his mental health. It's not appropriate. And I will never forget this. I really do believe that I have some PTSD from this because I can't even hear the word Bishop without that happening. So he puffed his chest up and he's a big guy. And he looked at me with all of this authority and this bigness. And he said to me, are you going to obey the authority I have over you and your son? And I looked at him and I cried out, no, and I walked out of the room. And that was the beginning of the hardest year of my life. So went home, talked to my husband. We decided this absolutely is not okay. That's when we started doing a deep dive. We were reading biology books and reading child development books. 
our desire was to talk to people who were active members of the church to see if this was wrong, if we're off base. It just, it was so wrong to us that it felt crazy that anyone would feel like it was okay. I ended up Googling Mormon sex therapist, Mormon family therapist to see if I could find someone who was a private counselor. And I found one. She was in Michigan, I believe. Anyway, I paid the fee to do telehealth. This was before telehealth was a thing though. And try and talk to her because she had the Mormon credentials. She had the therapist credentials and she absolutely reaffirmed how my husband and I were feeling that we weren't off base and that we needed to get some help for our son. We just did as much research as we can. We had a stack of paper about an inch high of all these things that we found and printed out to try and understand the situation a little bit better. And the end goal was just to help our son. We wanted to make sure because we had already seen the impact that him not thinking he was worthy had on his mind. So at the end of the week, we had our appointment with our stake president and it went more poorly than the meeting we had with our bishop. He treated us like we wanted our kids to be sex addicts. <laughs> you know, like we don't have the best interests of our kids at heart or that we wanted our kids looking at pornography or doing anything, which is laughable. We're responsible parents. We want to raise responsible children. What it came down to was that the policies that they had made were more important than looking at the individual situations and looking at individual people. And they didn't appreciate being questioned, period, about what they were doing and especially that it could be inappropriate. Wow. So, cause you were just, again, just saying, listen, our son has this OCD thing. Mm -hmm. This is going to put him into a more tailspin. It can get really bad. The consequences of this could possibly mean huge depression. We're just asking at this point for you to look at his individual case. Yes. That was very difficult for both my husband and me to just feel like we have a child who they're going to hurt. What's happening is going to hurt him. We could already see the effects of it on his life. And we needed to decide, are we going to obey what's being told to us? And are we going to listen or are we going to protect our son's mental health? And we chose to protect our son's mental health. So I want to hear what you did to protect him for my, you know, I have a lot of clients who are in the FLDS church who have come out of the FLDS church and similar interviews have been done with Warren or the bishop in the FLDS church where they have to write out their sins in a letter or tell them their sins. And then they were actually sent away on repentance missions or taken from their family. And I feel like you're saying maybe he wouldn't have sent your son away on a repentance mission. But in a sense, he's being sent away from the group of boys, which everyone kind of gets an idea of what that means. Then if you can't pass the sacrament or partake in the sacrament, then we know what you're doing behind mm -hmm. closed doors. And so mm -hmm. it's a different kind of shunning or pushing away from the group. Mm -hmm. And it's very shaming and harmful and, and it can affect your mental health. It is spiritual abuse. And it was very interesting to us. So what we did is we just made some really firm boundaries. Like I said, we had just sent our oldest son on a mission three days prior to this happening. And, you know, our goal was to stay committed to this church that we built our entire life on. With the advice of a counselor, we made some really firm boundaries that our children were not ever to meet alone in any circumstances and that they were never to be asked any questions past, do you follow the law of chastity? 
And that's what we accept as parents. And for the most part, they respected the boundaries that we made. And so we did continue in our church activity, even though for me, that was the beginning of the end of my belief that the church was the best place to raise a family. So we consulted with my husband's father and he was just really blown away that it was happening. He wanted to intervene, but we're adults. Was he agreeing with you or was yes. he not? A- no, he was agreeing with us. He was saying, these things are not okay. He was also in the same breath saying, but these are your leaders and you need to respect them. This is what they're deciding. They know things you don't know. And so they really do kind of have the ultimate say. So that was really difficult for me because I was thinking back on the time when I was, you know, 19 sitting in my bishop's office and I had been sexually and physically abused and he's telling me that I need to stay. Mm-hmm. And, and I absolutely know that leaders can make bad choices in those things. So it's all starting to come to full circle. I wish someone would have protected me from the spiritual abuse that I endured when I was close to this child's age, and I'm not going to let it happen to my own child. Wow. I just want to say that it's never appropriate for a lay clergy to ask your child sexual questions. I know that we're conditioned to feel like these interviews are okay, but I want you to really think about it. There's always a chance that you have someone in that room that doesn't have the best intentions. There's always a chance we risk it. It doesn't make sense. And Amanda, don't you think that your bishop and your stake president did have the best intentions? I do. Like they are good men Mm -hmm. asking the questions that they think are appropriate to help your kid get to a better place. But in your kid's specific circumstance, it was not correct. And not only for your kid, but for so many. And so... I agree with you, and many therapists would probably agree with me as well. Even with our intervention, the impact that that had on our son was evident. We would find him praying on his knees in his room several times a day. He was reading his scriptures three hours a day, but so we're talking about his scrupulosity now. He was doing every single thing that he had been told, if you do these things, these problems will all go away. He was doing every single thing. He didn't go swimming that entire summer because he was afraid that he would have feelings if he saw a girl in a swimsuit. So we saw the impact it had. So I ended up getting proxy counseling. I found a counselor here in town. I was just concerned with how can we help my son get through this? And so I would go to counseling weekly with these issues and how are we going to get through those? And I did that for a little while. It helped a lot. We had to assign him fun things to do and Mm -hmm. stop him from, I mean, we had to stop him from the checklist items because they were hurting him. So in the process of that happening, I feel like when you go through something where you have, you have the opportunity to question what's put in front of you and question your leaders. I believe that those situations open your mind to the possibility that things aren't perfect And when you are in that situation, it allows you to look at things with a more open mind. We're feeling betrayal. We're feeling betrayal right now. And we want to see, is this something that is so important to our family that we need to fight for it? And so I found these gospel topic essays and I read a few of them and along with some other things that weren't on the church's website. But I 
never would have gone off the church's website. That was the beginning of the end of my literal belief in the church. And this all happened in a couple week period where I lost my trust and my faith that the church leaders really had the intent to help my family and to care about my family. And also that possibly the, the literal belief or the things that I held true were really what they had been taught me to be. But the honest truth is the things that I learned on the church's website were enough for me to know that for me, I no longer believed that this was what I was taught it was, and I had a lot of soul searching to do. And there are people that can read those gospel topic essays, and we get a lot of people that come in here and they're like, oh my gosh, my husband or wife or son or daughter are reading these essays, and they're from the church, and they're leaving. But then there's plenty of people that can read them and stay And so we're just talking about a man of story right now. So as a therapist, you kind of have to know what people are talking about when they come in and they're like, I'm having a crisis about this. So I would encourage everybody to get to know what those are. So if you have a sibling or a loved one that comes to you, then you kind of know what they're talking about. Was it something you could talk about to people? No. Did you just keep it quiet or did you talk to your therapist about what you were learning? Thankfully, I was able to talk to my husband about it. He was really unhappy. I think unhappy could also be said as fear. I think fearful of what this was going to do to our family. He was willing to talk to me about it. He was not mad at me in any way, but he was very defensive Mm -hmm. at first. And if I had to label it fear, but I don't know, he would have to say. Right. No, it is a fearful thing because if someone, if you grow up, and you live a certain way, and then all of a sudden you learn, oh, we're not going to be living this way, or my loved one isn't going to be living this way, that that could change things. Yeah. And what does that mean for me? And so it, it can be end of fear. But, I mean, the things that's played out, I, they were not things that I knew. And at that moment, I knew I could not go back to the temple ever again in good faith because I would be covenanting with full knowledge. And I did not want to covenant to that. I did not believe in it. I did not accept it. It no longer fit my moral value. Wow. So even though I still wanted to try and fix this problem with my son and try and work on my testimony, I couldn't go to the temple anymore. So what were the mental health effects for you to say, gosh, I don't think I can go to the temple anymore? It's very interesting because I was still wearing my garments. I was still living life exactly like I was supposed to, but I had just made the choice. I'm not going to the temple. And so to me, it felt empowering. It felt like if there's something I can do, I feel empowered by the fact that I entered into that contract under, I'm not enough information. And so I'm going to fix it by not going back. You're saying you didn't have enough information and now you do. So now it doesn't fit. So there are going to be, LDS people out there that say, that's not what it means to me. And I can still go to the temple. And what do you say to them? Well, I say, that's not what it means to you until you have a leader look at you in the face and say, that's what it means. And then you have to ask yourself the question, do I honor and obey my church leaders or do I choose to follow my own path? This is just me. I know there are people who can make the rules the way they see fit. I can't. If it's a rule, I follow it. At that point, what happens then? I went through a dark night of the soul, no question. And it lasted a really long time. I like to describe it like 
basically someone picked me up, shattered me onto the ground, and then I had to pick up this tiny little skeleton shell of myself and start to pick up pieces and one by one try to put them back together. The reason I say that is because it didn't just affect religion, it affected spirituality. It affected my marriage that was built on this, my role as a mother, my role as a wife, my role as a woman. It affected everything to the core. And so then I was picking up these pieces and trying to shove them back into places and they didn't fit anymore. And then you're like, okay, now I just have this empty hole. I have to fill with something, but I don't know what to fill it with. And that is not easy. I think the hardest part is there are people who will listen to this and think, she just got offended then. See, she's just offended. I wanted more than anything for this to be right for us. I, it took me a good two years before I stopped going to church completely, before I took my garments off even, before I allowed myself to live my authentic life because I wanted to make it work so badly. It was the hardest decision to make. There was nothing easy about it. And I think a lot of times, you know, people say it was the easy decision. I lost my community. Mm-hmm. I lost respect. I lost my tribe. I lost part of my identity. I lost my parenting handbook. Yes. I lost my marriage handbook. There was a lot of loss that it probably would have been easier for me to just say, I'm just going to make it work for my kids, for my family, for whatever. But at the same time, I feel like the decisions I made were to protect my kids. So. Did you at one point tell your kids, Kate, we're not going to go to church anymore? No, we didn't ever really have that conversation. At that point, we decided, first of all, that we were not going to have such a strong narrative of you're going on a mission, but instead, these are some of the things that we have learned that we wish we would have known before we committed our whole life to this, and we really support you in whatever path you make, if you want to go on a mission, if you want to get married in the temple, whatever you want, we will support you. In fact, I still go and sit in church with one of my kids because that's his choice to go. And I'm totally happy doing that and supporting him on his path. But I just feel like they are going to go into it with their eyes completely open. They're not going to have the rug ripped out from under them when they're in their late 30s or 40s thinking, I really wish we would have known this. Sometimes I want, when people come in with these faith transitions, to some people it's like, well, just go back. You're happier if you're in. But if you can understand that if you were in a marriage and you just found out that your spouse had been laundering money for the last 30 years or something, I'm not saying that the church is doing that, but you found out something grievous that your husband or wife was doing and that's not who you thought they were this whole time to finally be opened up to that is, is jarring. And so that's what you're saying. It jarred me so much to learn these new things. And I wouldn't have learned those new things had I not had the experience with my son. Mm -hmm. You guys are kind of transitioning out Mm -hmm. and your mental health, you kind of feel like you're grieving a lot. You've lost a lot. How have you recovered from all that loss? (laughs) Because that is a lot. Yeah. Therapy, weekly therapy, and also it was it's interesting because I've always been a spiritual person. I just didn't know that I was a spiritual person because the spiritual situations that I was supposed to fill never happened naturally for me. They were manufacturer, manufactured and forced. For example, singing time, hymns, 
I never felt the spirit. I hated them. I hated singing. I couldn't wait for them to end. And I just thought there was something wrong with me because, you know, people like music brings the spirit, you know, and I'm like, well, there's something wrong with me. It just music doesn't touch me. But what does touch me is being out in nature on a run or on a hike. And so I had all these experiences with the spirit that were just misnamed or not appropriately named. And Mm. Then once I was able to recognize that I really was a spiritual person, it was really hard to separate my spiritual beliefs from religion because to me they were this. It, spirituality and religion were intertwined. There was no difference. And so then I had religion on the floor all cracked up and spirituality I have no clue. But it was, it's been good to be able to find what spirituality means to me. I just try to be a good person. I have always cared about the people around me in deep ways. And so I try to help people where I can. And, and I just love it because it's because I want to, not because it's what I was told to do. I mean, the core Amanda is still here. I'm still the person that I was always before. And I'm just trying to like shape it into something more authentic. What would you tell someone who has a friend or a family member who is in a transition period like you have been for the last five years? What would you tell them that they could do to best help their loved one? I think the hardest thing is to this day, I have close family and friends who haven't even asked. I feel like I'm a virus. I feel like they're afraid that if they talk to me, they'll catch what I have. This is going to sound harsh, but if you can't hear the things that I have to say without feeling like it's going to threaten you. I feel like it's time to do some internal work. I value and honor and cherish and respect everyone's journey. I would never ever want anyone to go into a faith crisis because of me, because I know how extremely difficult it is. I would never want anyone to feel like that. I would say really trying to understand them and understanding that what's going on and what's happening might be more complex than you've been taught and these things like they're offended and they want to sin or they're confused they're buzzwords and that people matter and what they're going through matter and maybe just to look at the individuals and not oh they're an apostate or or they're just offended or whatever label you want to give them how is your family now are you guys doing good are you still struggling like There's always going to be struggle, especially living in St. George. We have our issues as a family. I am never going to say, oh, we're this perfect family. I didn't do that in the church, and I am not going to do that out of the church. I mean, you have literally your parenting book taken away. And so now we're making up new rules, and some of them work and some of them don't. But I do feel like as a family, we still get together every night. I mean, not every night because we have teenagers who are busy, but... We make an effort several nights a week to get together, and it's not the scriptures we're reading, but it's self-help book, or it's joke books, or we just have what we call at our house a bra moment, because we're, (laughs) because I'm the only girl with a bunch of bras, you know, and we talk about gratitude, and we still have these traditions that are important to us, and so I would say as a whole, our family is healthy, but with the disclaimer that it's very hard to be the post-Mormons in St. George, Utah. What do you think has been the biggest thing that you've grown from being in this club now? Because I know that there's a lot of people in this club. And like you said, you don't want to wish it upon anybody. But mm-hmm. what is that growth for you? I am a woman who now trusts herself and intuition. 
and how the instruction that I got sat so heavy in my heart and I never could feel like that was good. So for me to be able to think about these issues and to like sit and dwell on them and think about them and research them myself and to come to conclusions on my own, it is so empowering to know that I can trust my intuition. I don't have to go to a man to ask him if what I'm thinking or doing is okay. I can trust myself. I can love myself. And now I know my worth and I know I'm going to make mistakes and I'm not going to be a perfect mom or friend or wife or anything, but I know my heart and I know that I can trust that my path is going in the right direction. Is there anything that we missed that you would want to tell the people who either you have loved ones going through faith transition or you or yourself are going through faith transition, anything that we might have not covered. I just want to tell you that there is still a community for you and it's waiting for you and it's a safe community. And in the end, I feel like having questions is normal and there's a community that's a safe place for you to ask them. My dad passed away in April and it was very interesting to me on a lot of levels. This is the first person that I've lost after faith transition. And so to ask questions about what we believe now, but also when someone passes away or there's a baby born, you have this automatic built-in community. And I didn't know what that was going to look like for me. And I'll just say that my community stepped up and my community is now includes very active Mormons and people who have left the church. And that's not how I identify them except for in this situation. But my community took such good care of me. So it might take you time to figure out who is really in your life because of religion or because of obligation. But there are people that are there who love you, who are both in and committed to the church and who have decided to take a step away and I think that's the biggest thing to know that there's light. I'll be forever grateful for that. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. Thanks for staying late. We kept her longer than we said we would. That's okay. But I am so happy to have you on here and sharing your story. It's very vulnerable. Well, thank you so much for coming to You Might Relate, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining me today on You Might Relate. I hope this topic brought understanding and insight. And if you can relate to something in today's episode, subscribe and leave a review. I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at You Might Relate Podcast. And be sure to share this episode with your friends. The more understanding we create, the better we are as humans. You are in charge of your day, so go make it a good one. Catch you next time.